and welcome back to this week's episode of the Mike the Gardener Gardening Podcast, sponsored as always by those rather lovely people at Natural Grower. Now, Natural Grower supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. They're absolutely crammed with certified organic growing power. And if you're looking for amazing results with all of your fruit and veg, your flower beds and houseplants, then Natural Growers award-winning certified organic peat-free compost and fertilizer are the very best you can buy. And your plants and gardens will love you for using it. All products are certified organic. They're 100% chemical-free and 100% peat-free. And those rather lovely people at Natural Grower have given me an exclusive 15% discount off all products for my listeners. Just pop MIC15 into the apply coupon field when you check out. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Mike the Gardener Gardening Podcast. And this time I'm chatting to Harry Baldwin, Head of Horticulture at the stunning Board Hill Garden in Haywards Heath, West Sussex. Now, Board Hill is a nationally important English country garden with magnificent views over the 383-acre Grade 2 heritage-listed parkland. Highlights of the garden for me include the azalea ring, the tranquil Italian garden and the stunning rose garden. Today, I chat to Harry about his journey into horticulture. (laughs) There you go. I've mentioned the J word and we've only just started. How he became head of horticulture at Board Hill, what the job's about, how the gardens are developed, climate change, sustainability, changeable weather conditions, champion trees and lots, lots more. It's a fascinating episode and probably best you keep a pen and paper to hand to jot down some of the plant names and some great gardening tips along the way. I started our chat by asking Harry about his first gardening memories. Well, I think I didn't know I wanted to go into gardening exactly. I just knew, as, a, as an only child growing up in the Hampshire countryside, I loved being in the outdoors. Um, but what I started to realise on my little walks, you know, with my dog and things, I started to notice trees, old trees especially, so yew trees, beech trees, oak trees. And after several walks, you know, looking up at these giants, I just loved to think all the history, all those years that this, this tree had seen. Um, so that was really my first gardening memory and some neighbours up the road who lived in a very big house and some lovely glass houses so I could use some of their facilities to grow some things. So I was, I was growing things like baobabs, I was growing redwoods, anything I could, you know, get my hands on, you know, I was just trying to grow and I loved it, you know, but I never thought it would be a career. So how old were you when this fascination with trees started? Some, you know, something about, you know, five, six years old, I would say, seven, you know, certainly before, way before I was 10 years old, I just loved looking at trees and I ended up starting, you know, gorilla planting around, around where I lived and all the neighbours got to know it was me. So you were the first gorilla planter. Perhaps so, yeah. <laughs> so were there any other gardeners in the family? Was there um, any love of gardening anywhere in the family? Yeah, so several generations back, um, my great-great-grandfather had, um, had a nursery in Petersfield uh, in Hampshire. Um, but that was then, you know, that disappeared over the years and things. But my father 
had a landscape business. So in the summer holidays when I was a teenager, I was out there in the summers working for him, you know, you know, just to earn some money really. But again, still, even at that point, I didn't know I wanted to go into horticulture. It was just a love I had in the back of my head without realizing it. And the tree thing, when we were talking before we started recording the podcast, the tree thing is obviously something I'm imagining is quite important to you still. Oh, very much so. You know, that is, that's my major interest, you know, but now being at Board Hill, of course, I'm trying to get my enthusiasm to perennials as well. <laughs> I'm getting there. But no, trees is really where my interest began. And of course, then, which I'll chat a bit later to you throughout my career, that was a strong focus of mine. So before you came to Board Hill, you had this love of trees, the nursery was in the family. When did you actually first start thinking about horticulture, gardening as being a career? And what did you then do about it? Well, it was actually when I was at college, Mike, you know, I was thinking about what, you know, you got to that point where you had to start thinking about what you're going to do, perhaps at university. And I knew I wanted to go to university. Um, so my dad said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm thinking I want to do a, a fine art degree. And he said, OK, great. But what are you going to do afterwards? And then I just stopped and I said, probably come work for you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was literally the light bulb moment when I was like, right, I'm going to do a horticulture degree. So I went to Ritter College in Essex, did three years there. Um, and then following that, I mean, I actually went for a few interviews, you know, trying to get an internship. But I was just rubbish at interviews at the time. You know, I just couldn't hack it. But I was given the chance by the Hillier Gardens in Hampshire. And that's really when everything just went boom for me. You know, you, I'm sure many of your listeners have been to the Hillier Gardens, the Harold Hillier Gardens in Romsey. And it's just littered with fantastic horticulture, you know, the centenary border, the winter garden, um, but also their trees. They have, you know, well over 10 national collections. They have champion trees. Um, but Barry Clark there, the botanist um, and also student coordinator, was the one that really got me going into plants. So was this a job you applied for or were you sort of tapped on the shoulder? Did somebody recognise you and say, come and have a, come and join us here at Hilliers? So I was just doing some research. After I got rejected from Cambridge, I got rejected from <laughs> Oxford to do those one-year traineeships. And I remember ringing up Barry over, over the phone and saying, look, I'm, I, I see on your website you do a one-year internship. Um, but it meant that I would have to volunteer, um, you know, I had to think about costs and things. Mm. After going to meet him, uh, I met Wolfgang as well, the director back then. I think they realised that I had perhaps some, you know, some potential. Um, but they got back to me and said, actually, we've managed to apply on your behalf, the Stanley Smith Trust, and we've got you an award that will pay you for a whole year to work as a trainee at, as a, you know, at Hilliers. So that was, that was the first big stepping stone, really, in my career. And that was good news for you as well. Absolutely. Brilliant, yeah. <laughs> so how long were you at Hilliers and what roles did you actually undertake there? So I went there as a, a one-year student, essentially, and that was the first time, you know, outside of my father's business and things, I was actually working in a garden, thinking about the rotation of plants, you know, the garden, how it works in a visitor attraction. So that was my first understanding. Um, but I managed to get, you know, propagation experience, and I started, I started, you know, getting interest in plants. But I remember Barry saying to me, he said, everyone in horticulture has something to their name, whether it's a plant or whether it's something they do. So I was kind of putting pressure on myself to try and find out what that plant interest is. You know, I always knew I had the interest in trees, but I was trying to latch on to something. And it was actually when I was working in the gardens, I came across this, well, I didn't know what it was actually at the time, but I was looking at it, it had beautiful brown bark, it had great big, thick, bullate leaves, it was evergreen, and it said Quercus ricephila. I didn't even know there was 
you know, other oaks other than English oak and the turkey oak. Did my research. It came from a place in Mexico called Horsetail Falls. And that's when my real interest started to begin. I then went through the arboretum, collecting specimens, pressing them, trying to propagate the oaks. So that's when I really got interested in oaks, essentially, and also trees, really. And so that then became your thing. You were the the tree guy. (laughs) Essentially. And then I was lucky enough to get a job at the Arboretum uh, for a further year, just to sort of cement my my studentship that I've been doing. Now, it's really strange because you talked on fine art then and Mm. the story then about trying to find something that was for you. I was also an artist. I went to college for a couple of years Mm -hmm. and they encouraged you to try and find your own style. And like you, I was desperately trying to find Mm. a style. And then when you take your eyes off the ball a little bit, it just happens quite naturally. So you, the tree thing came to you uh, and that's how you went forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it was just something that suddenly happened. You know, I, I know, you know, people put pressure on themselves and you even see it today, people are putting pressure on themselves trying to find out what do they really want to do. Um, so, you know, my only piece of advice would be just to, what do you really enjoy? What is it that you enjoy? Mm. You know, and go from that rather than trying to think maybe too logically about things. Don't, you know, not necessarily listening to people about what, you know, you should be doing, but what do you like doing? And I think in any career, if it's something that you love, it suddenly doesn't become a career. It's just a passion. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. So from Hilliers, what happened then? Where where did you go from Hilliers? Well, I wanted, I think I... I was still working out what my, my next steps would be, but I was increasingly heard about the Q Diploma, and I thought, well, actually, you know, I know I've done a degree already at Rittle, but I think what I needed was to, was to accelerate my interest, you know, learning my plants, my unusual plants and my trees, uh, and I felt like more learning was needed. Although I felt like I did a degree already, I was a little bit hesitant doing three more years of study, mm. but I felt that was my next step, you know, so I applied and I, you know, luckily got on, which was amazing. So at this point, how was your love of perennials another sort of outside of the tree love? How was that coming along? You know, it was coming along. It was coming along. You know, working on the centenary border at, at Sahara Hilly Gardens was a great, great eye-opener for understanding different perennials for different soil types, shades, light, everything else. So it did open my eyes, but I couldn't stop looking at those flowering trees and shrubs. <laughs> it was always there. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess always will be. It will be, I think, yeah. <laughs> so you've got, this, you've got this rounded knowledge now of horticulture culture at what point did you think or did it just all happen very organically how did you come to be here for example after after Q you're right it did happen really organically I've always had in the back of my mind as a young person you know when leaving university you want to go travel you know so that was really at the very forefront of my mind before I went to Hilliers um, but it was the offer of you know a paid studentship at Sir Howard Hilliers Gardens which I felt like I can't give that a miss. Mm. I can't give it a miss. So I went there, then I obviously got offered a job. So again, the travelling thing didn't happen. And then I felt like I wanted to apply for the Q Diploma and I should do it earlier than, early than later, you know, because could, I could fail the first round sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so then I did the Q and then I, you know, when I was at Q, then I got offered another job. And I never had the time or the chance because everything was happening organically. You know, I became very career focused. I really enjoyed what I was doing. So... You know, the travelling thing is, is gone aside now, but, you know, as horticulturists know, you have the opportunity to apply for travel bursaries. So that's where I filled that want in me, if you like, later on in life. Yeah, there's plenty of time sort of like going forward. You're a yeah. young guy, sort of like these things do happen organically and who knows what might happen in the future. So, yeah, mm. so at some point in the future, we'll hope to hear that you're travelling around yeah. looking at trees somewhere or other. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've really t- I try to take advantage. That's what I'd say to any young person. Take 
any opportunity thrown at you. You know, get as much experience as you can. When I was at Hilliers, you know, I became you know really good friends with Barry. We went to China together, so he showed me collecting in the wild. He has a natural collection of rubus, and that was really exciting to see. Um, and then we went to South Africa together. Uh, then when I was at Kew, I had the opportunity to apply for more grants. So I went to America. I went, I went and joined the International Oak Society looking at oaks. Um, so take advantage of those, of those grants. You know, they yeah. are there for people to learn, you know, and travel and see these plants in the wild. There's nothing better than seeing that plant in the garden as well as seeing it in the wild. I think, yeah, if you can actually see it where it in its natural habitat what it how it grows what it's growing alongside that's got to be what it's all about isn't it it is yeah i mean there's so you know you might be just looking at it but you you will never forget that moment you know seeing that tree out in i don't know you know seeing quercus ulnifolia the endemic oak to cyprus seeing that i remember seeing it at the howard hillier gardens their champion tree mm-hmm. and well i will be seeing it in cyprus actually in a few weeks time but anyway when i see it, i can imagine seeing it now up in the trudos mountains oh lovely know, yes understanding what it's growing with you know junipers cedars you know it, you never forget that plant association and i think we can read 101 books about planting combinations what goes where but to actually see it as i say in the natural habitat up in the trudos mountains with yeah. the junipers you always remember that and then you can transfer that knowledge back here or to wherever um first-hand incredible experience absolutely you know you know and that's you know you know you, you know you always manage to get these things across whether it's you're doing a lecture or if you manage to get write an article it's things you can reference you know even when you're old in your horticulture career you can say to other students oh well that grows with this in the wild and you know these sort of soils it grows with you know this particular bird disperses this seed you know all all these cobwebs meet together and that's mm. really what for me, makes horticulture exciting. People, places and plants. So, Board Hill, how did you come to be head of horticulture at Board Hill? Tell us the story. Um, So after leaving or finishing the Q Diploma, um, a position came up at Q as the dendrologist and taxonomist of the Arboretum under the very famous Tony Kirkham. Um, So explain dendrology for those of us who don't know. So essentially, dendrology means the science and study of trees, essentially. So, you know, it's a wide subject. Um, So my my real role was to verify and label the entire collection, really, groups at a time. So I started on maples, for example. So that would mean that I would use the the herbarium on site. You know, some of these old trees were dating back to some of the first introductions. So you'd be getting a sample from the garden. You'd be pressing it. You'd be scanning it. You'd be taking it to the herbarium. You'd be checking it against that collection you'll also then use the archive as well because you realize oh this was collected by Ernest Wilson you know back in 1901 so you've got you know you're not just necessarily reading a key but you're looking at all other means of information to work out what this special plant is but also then you find all these really interesting stories that are attached to some of these trees that you know it's not even published you know that was really exciting unlocking all these stories and that opened a whole new avenue for me in terms of interest with trees Um, so that job came up and it just got me to for full for, for three years I was there. So I managed to really be with trees and solidly focus on trees for three years. And also learning, you know, from Tony Kirkham himself. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, you know, that was one of the best things I ever did. So from that then, Board Hill. Yeah. And then then from that, you know, I always thought I remember watching Tony actually, you know, in the nursery. He would go and pick his trees out in the nursery in the Arboretum, then go place them within the grounds. And I always always thought I would love the chance to do that at some point you know but anyway my natural it came to an end naturally at Q um, I was looking for the next step uh, and this job head of horticulture at Board Hill Garden came up 
and I could see that the deadline was was running away from me. But anyway, I gave it a really good shot, um, and eventually I got a first interview. I was actually on holiday at the time, and I was told, "You've got an interview. Can you do it tomorrow?" <laughs> so quickly, straight to a hotel, get the Wi-Fi on, did a really long interview. You know, uh, and I really wanted this job. You know, I didn't think I would ever get it to be honest. I didn't have any management experience. You know, I knew my trees and my plants and things, but I haven't had that other side. Of, of experience yet within within management but anyway I gave it a really good shot and I think they like me so I got invited to a second interview and did you know the garden before this was it a garden that you had visited or were familiar with you know what I, it's not it wasn't a garden I was familiar with but from reading all the archive material in these old books in my previous position at Kew meant that I came came across the name Board Hill Garden a lot and yeah. I realized there was a number of plants named after Board Hill as well so it's always in the back of my mind ticking away um, so then I got off, you know, luckily off for a second interview um, and just gave it a really good good shot and I, and I got the position. It was probably one of the happiest moments ever, actually. It meant that me and my wife were moving away to, uh, you know, a brand new start in West Sussex. So congratulations on the appointment. So that was about two years ago? Yeah, it just came up to two years. So you came in, so you've got this wealth of horticultural knowledge. Uh, but as we've just been chatting about before we started recording... Your job as head of horticulture isn't just about the gardening. So how did the... Well, tell us about what the job is. What does the job of head of, head of horticulture actually mean here at Board Hill? <laughs> Crikey. Yeah, no, lot, lots to do. So I'm managing a 17-acre garden, you know, full of garden rooms, uh, which I can touch on a bit more later. And then we've got attached to that number of mature ancient woodlands attached to the garden. And around that, we've got then grade two style listed parkland. So we manage the whole site. Uh, and also, you know, with attached to the garden, we have um, a fantastic archive, which I hope again I'll manage to touch on. But seventy-five thousand artifacts, all relating to the garden and other bits and pieces. Um, so we look after that, and also we've got a beautiful walled garden that we're sitting in now, Mike. Mm-hmm. You know, early twentieth-century walled garden attached to an old stables. Um, and then, aside from that, we've also got our biodynamic. Uh, sort of plot across the road um, which is hopefully going to be feeding the restaurant in time so that's now been going over for about two years now um, so yeah lots to lots to look after absolutely so it's it's the here and now the gardening the management what you're actually doing at board hill but also planning for the future and as you say we're we're sat here in this garden here now tell us what's going to happen to this area here sort of like tease my listeners as to what they can expect in the years ahead so currently we're, we're sitting in the old 20th century wall garden, a little bit overgrown, um, but we are starting to clear it. But we're leaving, you know, I may have already said, I actually haven't said this just yet, but Board Hill is lucky enough to have a, a fantastic collection of trees and shrubs. You know, at one point, by the time the Colonel Stevenson Clark, who purchased the property in 1893, before he died... Board Hill was known to have one of the largest tree and shrub collections in the temperate region. You know, not British Isles, the temperate region. Uh, you know, a large amount of that's still gone. But, you know, littered throughout the countryside, outside of the estate, you've got all these non-native trees, mm. but, you know, of, of huge historical value. So sitting right here, you know, we're away from the garden, but we're starting to see the tops and silhouettes of all these unusual trees. Mm. Um, you know, just over there, I can see Asa Mamiens. You know, there's only 10 individuals left in the wild. Um, we're looking at a really large ginkgo just over there, um, as well as a beautiful Lindra megaphylla just over there, one of our champion trees. So surrounding the wall garden, we've got these fantastic figures. Um, it's a good start, isn't it? Is it? You start. know, there's a lot of history set around us. There is. And, and that just sort of like you pinpointing these beautiful champion trees 
it's lovely just to did you know it's incredible it is amazing it is amazing so now we're looking to clear the walled garden but leaving any notable plants within those beds uh, and the aim is to really I guess in one sense restore it back to what it was essentially but also make sure that we are showcasing showcasing heritage uh, vegetables heritage fruits and varieties uh, perhaps those are you know, found in West Sussex or once found in West Sussex or Sussex. Um, but really the theme is unusual edibles. So we want people to be able to walk into the garden and see a wealth of unusual edibles that people didn't realise that actually were edible. Mm. So hopefully, you know, wherever you pick from the garden, it will be completely edible. So we have Anne-Marie Powell, you know, fantastic garden designer, a lovely lady who's designing the majority of the walled garden. And then my senior gardener, Julia, she has a wealth of walled garden knowledge, is designing the rest of the walled garden. So we're hoping to team up with people like Krug Farm in you know, North Wales, yeah, yeah. take on their experience, you know, get a wealth of their plants like aracemas, um, you know, sambucus or whatever, you know, trying to fill the garden with all these unusual things that hopefully, you know, the restaurateurs can just pluck from the garden and put it into your cocktail. And I guess with a project like this, you've talked about restoring it to its former beauty, but I guess it's also the aspect of moving it forward as well and putting like a 21st century touch on it as well. Absolutely. So I think, you know, and this also goes same for the garden as well. You know, we want to make sure we keep it to the ethos. You know, we are custodians. We want to look look after it and make sure we take it through safely to the next generation, hopefully another 130 years to come. Um, but of course, things change all the time. You know, we've got pests and diseases. We've got climate to think about. We've also got you know, the industry to think about as well, how that's being driven forward, mm. thinking about mental health and well-being, community involvement and all that sort of stuff. So things are moving forward, but keeping the essence, you know, the ethos of it, you know, true to our to our hearts if you like there are so many sort of buzzwords keywords at the moment you've touched on climate change sustainability um, mental health awareness how do you as head of horticulture make sure that you're sort of ticking all the boxes for want of a better word because there's a lot to consider these days climate change being a massive subject in itself i'm always being asked what do we plant now that will cope with the weather conditions that we have in the uk I mean, yeah, that's right. It's a, big, it's a big question, isn't it? I mean, um, it's something we've got to start really thinking about. You know, climate change, for sure. But perhaps pests and diseases is, is, a, is a bigger thing than climate change, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, actually, we're, yeah. We're seeing things like, you know, pine processionary moth coming into the country. We've got acute oak decline. We've got, sudden, we've got oak sudden death. We've got, um, you know, I think there's well over 1,200 registered new pests and diseases that DEFRA are mentioning all the time. So pests and diseases is a big thing to think about. So, you know... We lost all of our, sadly, all our elms during the reign of, of Queen Elizabeth, you know, during during her reign mm. um, due to due to the elm disease. So recently we've been putting back elms back into the landscape, but using new strains. There's one that we've planted called New Horizon. Um, and it's supposed that the, the, the native elm would house the rare white letter street butterfly. And fantastically, this new variety, this new strain called New Horizon still does that. So hopefully, you know, we're still able to plant thinking about our ecology. Um, so, you know, those rare species of flora and fauna can still be supported by these new varieties. Now, you're clearly a busy guy. How much help do you have from the garden side of things? I think you said 17 acres to look after. So who is around to help you when you're not doing your other responsibilities? Um, so we have four full-time gardeners and two part-time. So essentially five full-time gardeners. Um, 
you know, and they're a great team, you know, always willing to do whatever in any weather, which is great. Um, but we do also have a, a fantastically, well, fantastic wealth of volunteers. We have about 20 volunteers wow. um, a week, which is, you know, which is huge for us. Um, so, you know, we're looking after the 17 acres of garden, some of which within that garden we've got, you know, big hotspots. We look at our rose garden, our Italian garden, that always have to look good. Um, but other than that, we've got to look after the woodlands, we've got to look after the parkland as well, there's you know, walled gardens coming online. So, yeah, there's always things we have to delve into to try and keep it looking good, but it's, you know, it's busy. <laughs> so with the advent of the walled garden, will that mean more staff or will it mean more responsibilities for the current team? Or Yeah, so we're, we're hoping this will be a full-time role. Uh, someone who's going to be managing this garden because it's essentially going to be the flagship, if you like, of Board Hill right. going forward. Um, so I haven't said actually, but we we've now got this new project called Reinventing Board Hill, and this will be one of the key pieces for reinventing the Board Hill because we've now got the fifth generation. Uh, yes. Jay, yeah. um, Jay Goddard now coming, you know, into the family as managing director. So that's really exciting. And she's got this fantastic vision. You know, we've got the Ward Garden being renovated. We've also got the South Park, which is also used by the public, not as much as by the garden. But the idea is that the South Park is going to become a hub of community and it's going to become a hub for education and mental health and well-being and being very kindly supported by the National Heritage Lottery Fund. Yeah. So by 2026, we're hopefully going to have a fantastic eco-lodge almost floating on one of our lakes, which would be a hub for education. It is also a place for facilities as well. We've got a woodland out there called Dinosaur Wood, which is where there were some b- dinosaur bones found. It's an old quarry. Oh, wow, really? Uh, amongst some of our, many of our champion trees. So hopefully that'll be a hub for education as well. So we've got all these fantastic new projects coming online. And as everyone's aware, the 21st century now is all about those three key pillars. Mm mental health you know and education and community involvement so we want to make sure we open the pool to a wider demographic as possible for board hill so really exciting times going forward a new generation within the family and looking to the future as you say to reinvent board hill that's that's incredibly um, exciting for everybody mm-hmm. no absolutely so yeah some lovely and fantastic pro- projects coming online so something to certainly keep us busy there's all sorts there's climate change the weather i mean the weather last year a hot dry summer this year hasn't quite been so hot and dry it's been quite wet how do you actually cope with the weather conditions and are you finding that there are certain plants that are now struggling with the current climate yeah absolutely you know last year was a real eye-opener for everybody i think Mm. you know and and it's a funny thing, actually, because we've seen, of course, sadly, a number of things die. You know, the sap was still risen and it was still hot in December, everybody knows. And we had a cold snap. So that, I think, is probably one of the biggest reasons why we've seen so many things fail. Um, but at the same time, we've also had one of the best years for flowering. You know, we've seen our hydrangeas, our, our flowering dogwoods, um, you know, catalpa flowering their socks off this year so so much wood has obviously been ripened uh, and has allowed for so much flower and fruit to come this year so it's an interesting one um, but it really means that we have to really think about what we are going to be planting you know we're lucky enough to have a borehole on site so we're able to keep up with the watering where necessary but it's some of our key collections like our rhododendrons you know that haven't got a canopy cover, uh, mm. cover over the top where we have mm. to really start thinking about what our next steps going to be in order to look after them you touched on the rose garden earlier. Now, I was lucky enough to come. I've been a few times to see the rose garden, and it's spectacular. How are the rose garden, or how are the roses within the rose garden actually coping with the um, current climate? I mean, it's been an awful year in terms of mildew and everything else for the roses, but it's also been a really good way to find out 
which varieties are best to be growing. So I've now seen, you know, we, we grow all David Austin roses essentially in our rose garden. Mm. We've got 700 um, individuals, about 150 different varieties. So we're showcasing a lot of what David Austin have to offer. Um, but it's also a good experiment to now see what does not do well, you know. So this winter I'm looking at removing some of those roses, also removing the soil as well. Because I think every year it's been mulched since the 90s. It's never really had a break. And I think that build-up of nutrients has basically meant it's almost devoid of being able to take up these nutrients, I think. Mm, mm. So uh, looking at, we did one patch last year, so we, we put a load of new loam in, uh, bought some new stuff and put them in. So um, I think every year now we're going to start to change it over, make sure we are showcasing the best varieties for people looking around the rose garden. And what is your soil here? I mean, obviously, I guess it changes across the site, but predominantly, what is your soil type? So it's predominantly a loamy clay, and then you get pockets of sand as well. Um, and I guess what's what's nice about the garden, we're sitting on an east-west ridge right now, so we have a north-facing slope and a south-facing slope. Mm. Um, and also then we've got things like quarries. You know, we've got little disused quarries throughout the garden, the estate, which are great for, for moist, sort of tropical-like plants. Um, and then we also have mature woodlands as well, which are great for growing rhododendrons in. Um, and so when Colonel Stevenson Clark came here in 1893, he really thought about right plant, right place, because many of these trees that came into cultivation without any reference to books or anything like that, he really had to think about where he's going to plant them, which is amazing now still to see, like we saw earlier, that mm. you know over 100-year-old magnolia still doing fantastic. Let's pick up on that, this incredible magnolia. And we were saying it's very easy to walk around a garden and be oblivious to the history uh, and some of the what's happened to the tree. How did it get here? Tell us about the magnolia and some of the other champion trees that you've got here. So we've got about 70 champion trees across the estate, um, which is fantastic. Well, let's just explain for those who (laughs) don't know, what is a champion tree? So a champion tree is essentially the tallest or the largest in girth of its kind in the British Isles. Um, So Board Hill's lucky enough to have 70 of those across the site. That's incredible, really, for 17 acres to have so many. Yeah, sorry, I should probably note that that's across the garden and also the South Park, the woodlands, and also just around the estate as well. Okay. Um, So, yeah, it is still a large number, which is is, really exciting. So the magnolia we saw earlier, that was magnolia camberlai. Everyone knows it's those lovely big uh, sorry, pink blooms that come out, you know, February, March time. Um, But that was a a stonker, wasn't it? It was absolutely huge. It's a stunning tree, and to see a magnolia that size mm. the stature uh, just incredible and you know what's nice I did, I did touch on it earlier about our archive but we have 75,000 artifacts in our archive which range from you know old head gardeners diaries we've got old maps we've got old photographs but the really exciting thing is all these letters from these old plant hunters like Ernest Wilson Joseph Rock George Forrest Reginald Farrer uh, Harold Coomber and the rest of them who the colonel would have sponsored at that time because that was been a really exciting time because mm. it was no longer the premise of botanic gardens or academics like Joseph Hooker it was now the time of the wealthy landowners to get a piece of that pie so he sponsored all these plant hunters um, and they brought back a wealth of all this material Material, which is exciting so the archive we've got some of these fantastic letters like George Forrest you know writing to the colonel attaching a seed packet called Emanoptris henryi um, which I was telling you earlier Mike um, and it was known to be the most fragrant and most proliferous tree of the Chinese forests mm. um, and, and of course the colonel in 1920 was very excited to plant this tree 
and you know he wanted to see it flower but sadly he died before it seen it flower but also the second generation died so did the third it was only the fourth generation mr and mrs clark in 2011 that saw it flower for the first time and now it's sort of flowered every few years but it's very dependent and very funny in terms of temperature and, and climate and things in order for it to flower so what's it looking for what are those perfect conditions for it to flower so from what i understand it needs a cool winter um but a, a warm summer as well so it's funny, that being 100 years old, has only flowered a handful of times. But there's some plants at Quarry Hill Botanic Garden in California that were collected, uh, well, I know they're about six years old anyway, and they were flowering at six years old. So clearly a Mediterranean-type time, uh, sort of um, climate, obviously, yeah. is what it needs. It must be quite exciting when you can actually see those flower buds forming, sort of oh. like everybody gathered around, it's going to happen this year. Oh, no, it's fantastic. You know, it's so exciting. And I just love all those historic stories coming out throughout the plants because I think there's always so much more um, just to a flower or to a tree or a plant. It's knowing that whole backstory from the missionaries that went over mm. to China, perhaps, for example. Or, you know, just I just love all that history stuff. I think it just makes the whole story so fascinating. Yeah, it gives it another layer. So as a visitor to Board Hill, are the archives available for people to see? So, yeah, what we do is uh, a couple of weeks of the year, we'll open our archive up and we'll lay out some of the most, you know, some of the key artefacts on a table. Uh, So we'll have a a tour all through the archive and following a tour with me where I can take that historical narrative and then display that of our living collection. So people get to see, you know, the historic records and then get to see the living beings. I was lucky enough last time I came to actually see some of the archives Eleni and Andrew John kindly showed me. It's incredible, the the letters, as you say, from head gardeners dating back hundreds of years. Are you conscious now, as head of horticulture, that some of your correspondence might actually be here in years to come? Yeah, that's right. So I'm trying to to have my handwriting as neat as possible. Um, So, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So... um, yeah, it's you know record keeping is a must. You know, and right now one of our well, one of my biggest projects is trying to do a huge inventory across the whole site. You know, what have we still got at Board Hill? You know, what is still living? What health? You know, are these things still in? So I have a, a really great, fantastic, dedicated volunteer, Philip Holmes, who some of you might know, who's worked at Nyman's for most of his life, right. uh, and he's got a fantastic knowledge of of trees and shrubs and rhododendrons. So he's going across every Monday across the whole site using the archives, using his knowledge and then working out essentially what we still have. So, for example, you know, one thing I'm trying to get at the minute is a national collection of historic rhododendron to Board Hill prior to 1946, when uh, before the colonel died. So I know that Board Hill has about 12 out of 29 Board Hill selections still living. Um, But after that really, you know, that awful drought and heat that we had, they're, they're not thriving. So... Um, luckily, I've been, you know, we've managed to get a grant to try and um, get these propagated. We're trying to do it through this micropropagation with Dutchy Cornwall, down in Cornwall, um, to get these micropropagated along with our other historic rhododendron as well. So we can put them back into the garden, but also share them with gardens like in Scotland or in, in Wales where they're going to thrive better right. and hopefully last for another generation. Exciting project. How long will that take? Have you got a sort of like an end date, or is this just something that will depend on? how it goes i guess so i sent 100 buds down to dutchy cornwall recently and 50 have been successful which is great wow, yeah so i've got another 70 to get propagated um so there's a few more but i'm thinking it's going to be done in a few phases so hopefully a few years fingers crossed um you know we get the natural collection status um but i've got to fill out the next second application so we've been, we've been um we've been confirmed to the first now i've got to wait for the second so let's see 
So the National Collection then, let's just touch on that. You apply for this, do you? You don't just have someone come along and say, oh, yes, you've ticked all the boxes, that's it. There's more, obviously, a lot more to it than that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the health of the plant, you know, how many individuals do you have of each individual plant? And I, and I guess, importantly, your records, are they good records? Yeah. You know, when was it planted? Is it what it says it is? Um, are they in good health? You know, is it open to the public as well? So, yeah, you've got to have some key criteria in order to get a status. And once you have the status, is that given or do they come back for an annual check or a periodic check just to make sure everything is still heading in the right direction, your records are still accurate? That's right. So every year you'll then have a yearly checkup looking at the plants. Are they record, you know, are they keeping, are you propagating them? So yeah, you've got to make sure you're still ticking all the boxes. You are representing, you know, that great charity plant heritage fascinating absolutely fascinating to get involved in something like that your your job is quite diverse in many respects isn't it it is yeah it is yeah from health and safety to national plant collections to propagating some of our rare plants that you know you don't even know how to propagate so yeah it's one thing for another on a different day and i guess things like that because you you can't know it all um for the, for the propagation, do you have people around who you can turn to, experts in in different sort of genre? Or yeah, so we've been lucky since um, since the garden was purchased in 1893 that we've had a board of trustees, and that's continued now for 130 years. So that'll be you know some of the best and most knowledgeable people in different areas of the industry mm. um, who will then come every was well, about three to four times a year. They'll come to the garden. It's a chance to discuss some of the problems that we've seen over the last few months at Board Hill. You know, and perhaps how can we how can we get through some of these problems, such as you know, pests and diseases, some of our important plants. What yeah. can we do? So that advice is fantastic. So we have someone from um, from Kew, we have someone from Wakehurst, um, Cambridge Botanic Garden, Edinburgh. So we've got some key figures in the industry who can really support and make sure the direction of Board Hill is going in the right way. And I think what's fascinating hearing this is, again, as a visitor, it's very easy to come in and see this incredible garden, but to know how much goes on in the background, just to keep it ticking over, there's a lot of people, a lot of effort, a lot of time involved with the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just... It's a tricky one. You know, it's, it's a family-run business, but mm-hmm. we are a visitor attraction. You know, we've got these important plants that we've got to be custodians of. But at the same time, the garden has to look great so we can get people through the door to support the charity. Um, so, you know, there, there, you know, there is a lot, of, a lot of pressure. You know, we've got to make sure the garden's looking good. We've got to compete with a number of other gardens surrounding us. Yeah. You know, and we're just one. We're just one special board hill. So we've got to really make sure that we're doing the tip-top thing that we can do. So when it comes to moving the garden forward, if you have ideas of your own, I take it you then go to the Board of Trustees to sort of share your ideas, your proposals, costs, etc.? Yeah, that sort of thing, really. You know, anything major, it's always a great talking point because they love to talk about all plants, of course. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, talking about the micropropagation of some of our rare rhododendrons or perhaps which ones can be propagated by cuttings rather than micropropagation. So yeah, it, I will go to them and we'll discuss it at the roundtable discussion about the next steps going forward for various things. Now, it's a garden, it's a beautiful garden, but you also hold events here as well. And I just wondered, those events, I guess, bring new people into the garden, hopefully. I came for a fantastic jazz afternoon a couple of months ago. That's right. So we have, you know, we've got a busy calendar all the time. We've got so many different events. We've got from our Halloween trail, which which comes on very online soon, which is fantastic for families and kids. Um, But then we have the Great British Food Fair, you know, which happens in the summer. Um, We've also got the Gin Festival. So we have all these different varieties of events to try and attract as many people to the garden you know and get it get it well known get people speaking about board hill and hopefully get some memberships you know so people can support the garden 
when's the gin festival <laughs> i can't quite remember um no that was uh that was back in uh august or july or august yeah so if anybody's interested in these events head to the website yeah head to the website and keep a key out keep a keen eye for our social media page where we're always listing off what events coming up for example this winter we've got a wreath making workshop um I've got, i'm lucky enough to have a couple of team who are very creative have a floristry background so we get to collect all the material across this state all very sustainable mm. you know you get to work with some amazing trees and bits and pieces like that to make a wonderful wreath for your front door What's happening in the garden at the moment, as we head towards autumn, go into winter, there are some people that assume that it all comes to an end and that the garden is like, well, what do you do? What do you do at this time of year going forward into winter? Well, right now, one of my priorities, although I'm sure it wouldn't be agreed with everybody, is to collect some of those seeds of those rare trees and shrubs in the garden. Um, So that's one thing we're trying to always do, making sure that we're collecting these things to make sure we can put it back into the garden. Aside from that, you know, now we're looking into division time of perennials, um, so lots of that to do. And there's, certain, there's many of our borders that are just solid clay. And after that really wet winter we had, yeah. a number of them just suffered. So this year we want to divide the perennials, we want to add in lots of grit and some good compost, try and break up that clay a little bit, which I think would be better for some of our perennials. Um, and it won't be long till we start thinking about mulching as well. We've got our rose garden to mulch and prune. Um, so I do love the winter months because it's, char- it's a time to really start to renovate parts of the garden, um, you know, and then be planting, you know, more plants and trees. Let's just pick up on the mulching. When, when exactly do you mulch? There are a number of uh, schools of thoughts. Mulch in the autumn, mulch in the spring. What are your thoughts on when to mulch? Why? and why is the best time what are your thoughts on mulching and when's the best time and why so at board hill we're lucky enough to have a number of farms actually on the estate so we can get horse manure when we wish we've um you know we have a local arboriculturist who who uh, drop chippings for us wood chipping which is brilliant uh, and of course we gather all our leaves up for leaf mold so we've got you know a number of resources at hand to mm. make some really good compost which mm. is great um i think you know by textbook if i had the, if i had the resources i would say i'll do most of the mulching in sort of january february time yeah. keeping that mul- moisture in the soil you know um and it will just retain that moisture you know but uh, really i'll be mulching from you know november december january just because we've got such a large garden to mulch yeah you know and at the end of the day i need to try and do whatever we can really yeah i guess with 17 acres it's a little bit different to sort of like half an acre at home or however big it is absolutely you're clearly very busy um working on the garden how much time do you actually get to spend in the garden or gardening yourself I think it, it depends really from day to day, depending on how you know how how many things I have to do, from health and safety, um, you know, to doing some of those Instagram reels that you may well have seen. Um, so it really changes. But I try to always be out with the team, whether it's brambling, weeding, you know, to planting trees or propagating from time to time. Um, but one thing I'm always very keen to do is to walk around the garden for at least an hour a week, mm. see it from well, a, firstly appreciate what we're doing, but also see the garden as a visitor point of view you know picking out things that the visitor might see before the weekend when we get all those people through the door so i think it's important i remember tony kirkham always used to say he would never look at his um his emails till 10 o'clock in the morning he would always go around look at the trees look at the arboretum you know what needs to be done as a priority i guess that's what it's all about the garden obviously has to come first and foremost it's sort of got to be top priority hasn't it it does yeah at the end of the day that you know we you know we're a charity we need to get people through the door to appreciate the garden so it has to be looking as good as we possibly make it 
And you touched on health and safety earlier. So health and safety, obviously, for your team, for people who work here, but I guess very importantly for the visitors as well, we need to ensure, you need to ensure that it's a safe place to come to. That must be, again, it's quite a responsibility. There's so many things that could potentially be a hazard for visitors. No, absolutely. I mean, you've got things from from ice to rain, um, but also perhaps a big one that perhaps isn't always everyone's radar is trees. Mm. You know, how safe are your trees? Yeah. Um, and, yeah and also thinking about what we're going to be planting for the future, because we all know cedars can have, you know, um, summer limb drop, which is a big thing. So not planting cedars near paths. So thinking really about, you know, are those trees safe? You know, that's a really important thing, especially being a garden where we have so many trees across the site. You know, that is my, you know, one of my key things. I'm very keen to make sure that we are adhering to. You spend a lot of time here at Board Hill. Do you have your own garden, Harry? I, lucky enough, just got myself a nice little house in uh, in West Sussex. Uh, and it's lovely to have a garden for a change. You know, being in London before, you know, living in flats and, and bits and pieces, never had the chance. So now, yes, I've got a small garden, which I'm tending to and have big plans for it. So what are your go-to plants? Do you have a collection of plants or a style of garden that you particularly like? Oh, it's a tricky one. Um, I must say, I've been really enamoured with grave time recently. And that's what's quite nice here at Board Hill, we have a number of gardens like Grave Tide, we've got Wakehurst Place, we've got Nyman's to get inspiration. Mm. But I, I just love, you know, what Tom Coward does and his team at Grave Tide, you know, with the salvias and the dahlias and just the way that they plant that, I think that's absolutely fantastic. So mm. at Board Hill, we did, we did, we had taken a leaf out of their book and we've been growing a number of annuals here at Board Hill earlier this year which I think are fantastic. You know, not bedding, but annuals. Mm -hmm. So looking at things like Asclepias, for example, and they're going to give you colour throughout the rest of the year to the first frosts. And that's my sort of new style of gardening, if you like. You know, away from the woody stuff, looking at some of the late flowering perennials like salvias. When you go to gardens, I mean, do you go to gardens or is it too much when you work in a garden? I mean, there's this sort of like balance, isn't there? Sort of like we talk about our significant other halves. It can be sort of quite sort of... um, consuming for them to be involved and oh let's go to a garden let's go to a garden do you go to gardens for inspiration or do you just stick to what you know here and yeah no no i i do i do um but like you said i think everyone is everyone's different i do like to go to other gardens and 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 see but also see people as well i think gaining inspiration from gardens and people coincide um but like for any head gardener or any gardeners you never really kind of switch off. You're always thinking about the next thing. Yeah. Um, I quite often get told off at home for not really giving it a rest. You know, the library continues to get bigger. You know, the books seem to be hanging around the house. Um, but yeah, that's where I get my ideas, you know, going to places like back to Hilliers where I started, getting ideas from them. Mm. You know, so, you know, looking around garden is, you know, is a great inspiration. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat to us today, Harry. For those who want more information, you've talked about the website and your Instagram pages. Give us a shout out. Where do we, what's the website name? Where do we go? So this is boardhill.co.uk um, or find us on Instagram uh, where we've got plenty of sort of things always coming up. Something I forgot to ask, which I'll pop in before we cover that bit. As a head gardener, you're clearly sort of very, very happy here. There's a lot in the pipeline. But head gardener, head of horticulture, what are your aspirations for the future? Do you look for uh, a, a 
bigger garden or a garden with more challenges or is board hill i mean say you've got so much to do here it would take a lifetime to see all of that through no absolutely you know what i'm not entirely sure to be honest um i I guess right now i'm trying to make the most of here and now yeah you know i i understand i have a lot to learn you know i'm just trying to make sure that you know, but any head gardener is always busy trying to take some time out to learn and understanding what you're doing it, why you're doing it, you know, and how can you develop the garden more. So, um, you know, as long as there's trees, I'm happy. <laughs> trees has been a bit of a theme today. <laughs> Harry, thanks ever so much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Lovely, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. A fascinating chat. And since I recorded the episode at Board Hill, they have gone on to win the Brand Social Media Influencer of the Year Award at the prestigious Garden Media Guild Awards. So congratulations to the whole team there. And do check out their social media platforms. The Instagram platform with Harry's tips is incredible. And also, definitely another garden to add to your wish list and one you'll certainly not be disappointed in visiting. So, as always, my thanks to Harry and the team at Board Hill for their hospitality. And now I'm going to be heading out into my own garden on what is a rare blue sky dry... dry, I'll say the word again, dry, autumn day. And top of my list today is getting sweet chestnut leaves off the lawn. So thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow and subscribe as there's still lots more to come. Happy gardening to one and all of you and I will see you very soon. Bye bye for now. Bye bye.